verses 1 through 16. Let's carefully listen to the word of the Lord and reverently uh, do so as well. 1 Timothy 5. Do not sharply rebuke an older man, but rather appeal to him as a father, and to younger men as brothers, the older women as mothers, and the younger women as sisters in all purity. Honor widows who are widows indeed, but if any widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to practice piety in regard to their own family and to make some return to their parents, for this is acceptable in the sight of God. For she who is a widow indeed and who has been left alone has fixed her hope on God and continues in entreaties and prayers night and day. But she who gives herself to wanton pleasure is dead even while she lives. Prescribe these things as well, so that they may be above reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Let a widow be put on the list only if she is not less than 60 years old, having been the wife of one man, having a reputation for good works. And if she has brought up children, if she has shown hospitality to strangers, if she has washed the feet of of the saints' feet, if she has assisted those in distress, and if she has devoted herself to every good work. But refuse to put younger widows on the list. For when they feel sensual desires in disregard of Christ, they want to get married thus incurring condemnation because they have set aside their previous pledge. And at the same time, they also learn to be idle as they go around from house to house, and not merely idle, but also gossips and busybodies talking about things not proper to mention. Therefore, I want younger widows to get married, bear children, keep house, and give the enemy no occasion for reproach, for some have already turned aside to follow Satan. If any woman who is a believer has dependent widows, let her assist them, and let not the church be burdened, so that it may assist those who are widows indeed. Amen. Please be seated. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is powerful, that you use it when it is read and preached to um, to pierce the heart, to uh, convict of sin, to encourage uh, those who are faint-hearted, to uh, be a blessing of a source of wisdom to those who are ignorant. Uh, to be a goad to those who lack motivation, to bring words of peace to those who are distressed. Would you please do all these things and more through this time as your word is preached now, Lord Jesus. We ask it in your name. 
Amen. Children? Let's have the children all looking up here. All right, there we go. Um, children, you know you're a part of a family, right? You know that. And family members, members of a family, often have a responsibility for one another. A responsibility sometimes to, or oftentimes, to watch over one another or provide for one another or care for one another, other members in the, in the family. Uh, and we take turns doing this sometimes. Sometimes we don't take turns. Sometimes there's a long, an ongoing responsibility, but sometimes it's just brief. But let me give you a couple of examples. So in terms of a, 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 an ongoing responsibility to care for somebody in your family, your parents have that, right? They have a responsibility to feed you, to, uh, to uh, put clothing on you, to provide a warm house for you, uh, a place for you where you're protected. And that's an ongoing responsibility that your parents have to care for you and provide for you. But there are other times when other members of the family have responsibilities as well. You might have a responsibility, if you're one of the older children in a, uh, or the older child in a family, to care for um, your brother or sister who's younger than you temporarily. Your, your mother may say, now I want you to, when you go over to the neighbor's house, I want you to look after your, your little sister or look after your little brother. So sometimes you children might have that responsibility of caring for one another. Um, and so families have responsibilities to care for family members and uh, in different ways. Well, this passage that we're looking at today and that I'm going to unpack for us today is about uh, family, responsibility, uh, fam- family responsibilities. I'm not talking about a physical family so much, although in part uh, that there's some of that. But I'm talking, no, actually, actually, there is physical family relationships that are involved in this passage. Uh, but also beyond just the physical family, we're going to talk about the spiritual family's responsibility to the spiritual family members, uh, people, members of the church that we have collectively for one another as well. So we're going to be talking about this throughout the sermon. Both points uh, uh, speak of family responsibilities. And you need to listen because if you may have a responsibility for another member of your family, uh, or a member of another member of the church, and certainly when you grow up, you're going to have more and more responsibility in your life that you God has given to you. So we need to understand that, and this passage helps us to do that. In uh, the we're in chapter five here. Well, at the end of chapter four, in verses eleven through thirteen of chapter four, uh, Timothy is remember the letter is to Timothy. That Timothy is urged by Paul in. Uh, verses 11 through 13, to teach and to exhort regarding the matters which Paul has written about in this letter to him. He says, I want you to teach and prescribe these things. He, uh, that's a direct quote from verse 11. He's talking to Timothy as the, as the pastor there in Ephesus. And he says, he commands him, he says, teach. You need to teach the things I'm telling you in this letter. You need to prescribe these things for people in your, uh, in your congregation. Uh, and uh, over whom you have responsibility for of spiritual care. And so he tells him that. And Paul also, in these preceding verses, also told Timothy, because Timothy was a young man, relatively speaking, he said, don't let anybody look down on you because you're young, as you teach them. 
Don't allow them to get away with dismissiveness of your teaching. So after telling Paul, uh, Timothy, these things, Paul probably, and this is probably the explanation for what we read here in the beginning of chapter 5, Paul probably realizes, now wait a second, I've just told Timothy this, and they didn't have erasure ink back in that day, uh, or uh, erasers, and they couldn't erase, he couldn't erase what had been written, and a lot had already been written uh, of this letter. And so he probably, and he was inspired, so he didn't want to erase any of it. But he, uh, but he probably thought to himself, now wait a second, Timothy might mistakenly conclude from what I just told him, don't let anybody look down on you, Timothy. You're a teacher of, the, of Christ. You're a servant of Christ. Don't let anybody look down on you as you teach these things to him. He's, he might, it appears that he was concerned that Timothy might take that, uh, mistakenly conclude that obeying Paul's instructions to, to teach and preach and let nobody look down on him as he does so, Paul's concern, he might take that as, Timothy might think, I need to employ a heavy hand to make sure that these people hear my exhortations or to make sure nobody, um, you know, uh, mistreats a, a pastor in Christ's church, namely me, meaning Timothy. Uh, and Paul appears that he's a little concerned about that. And so what he does is he writes what we read in verses 1 and 2 here today to him. <clears throat> that's probably what's going on, even though I, you know, Paul isn't here to confirm that. But that's logically what uh, almost certainly was going in his head um, as the human agent uh, writing this letter. Uh, so he writes uh, what he writes here in the first two verses. We're going to get to it here. But first I just want to tell you what the two points of the passage are. That they're summarized, uh, the content of it, in two points. First, we're going to look at how various church members should and shouldn't be cared for by their church pastors. How various church members should and shouldn't be cared for by their church pastors. That's in verses 1 and 2. And then in the last, the last section of the of the passage, we're going to look at how widowed church members should and shouldn't be cared for by their church family. How widowed church members should and shouldn't be cared for by their church family. But first, the first point, verses 1 and 2, how various church members should and shouldn't be cared for by their church pastors. By the way, the term pastor here, I'm using this term not just to describe a congregation's principal teacher, which is what I am in this congregation, what we call teaching elders in the PCA, but I'm using the word pastor more broadly than just teaching elders. This also includes ruling elders. You've heard me say, I think most of you, uh, probably several times, that we're all pastors. It's not just me. I do more teaching than the other gentlemen do, but that doesn't mean I'm the only pastor in this church. There are four in this church. Cecil Paul, uh, Bill, and Kirk, along with myself. And so this, uh, when I talk about being cared for by church pastors, I mean the, uh, the elders, in effect. So, um, how should church members should and shouldn't be cared for by their their pastors? Well, church members, we are told here by Paul in verse 1, shouldn't be sharply rebuked by their pastors. 
Verse 1, do not sharply rebuke an older man. And he goes on. The Greek word that Paul uses here originally meaned, that is, before the New Testament was written, in the centuries prior to the writing of the New Testament, by Paul, uh, this letter by Paul, the Greek word originally meant to strike at, to beat upon, or to inflict with blows. It was violent. It was a violent concept. That was what the uh, term originally, uh, in the centuries prior to Paul's day, uh, what it meant. But by Paul's day, it had taken on a, a, a different meaning or an additional meaning, perhaps, uh, that had to do with how one speaks to another person and addresses another person. And in Paul's day, it had come to mean, this Greek word, to chide or to upbraid, kind of an old-time expression, but it, it works if you know what it means, or to chastise with words or to express strong disapproval as a form of punishing someone. It's, it's kind of violent language, you might call it. Uh, and that's the way Paul is using it here when he says, do not stro- uh, sharply rebuke. Uh, he uses that word. Now, let me say this before we go any further. The Holy Spirit, who is speaking through Paul as he's writing here, or writing through Paul as he's writing, is not ruling out all expressions of rebuke by Christ's pastors. He's not saying, don't ever rebuke somebody. That's not the point here. And we know that, that there are times when it is necessary, or may be necessary, for one of Christ's under-shepherds to rebuke someone under his spiritual care, is evident from what Paul says elsewhere. And not just Paul, but we'll just stick with Paul for for the time being, illustratively. So over in 2 Timothy chapter 4, Verse 2, Paul is talking to Timothy again there in, a, in another letter that he wrote, and he says to him there, preach the word, uh, Peter, uh, Peter, uh, Timothy, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. And then he says this, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. Clearly, in verse 1 of chapter 5 in 1 Timothy, Paul is not saying don't ever rebuke anyone, Timothy. No, he's not saying that. And by the way, another passage that makes the point that rebuke is necessary sometimes in Christ's church is later in chapter, uh, in the, in, uh, chapter 5, verses 19 and 20. You just skip down a few more verses. We'll look at this more next time we're together, Lord willing. But he says in verse 19, Do not receive an instruction against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. Those who continue in sin, meaning those elders who continue in sin, rebuke in the presence of all, so that the rest also may be fearful of sinning. So here you have a place where it says that there will be times when even an elder will need a rebuke. So it's not all rebuke that's being um, that Paul is speaking of there in verse 1. He's speaking of, New American Standard, sharp rebuke. Sharp rebuke. He's, he's forbidding rebuke which is unduly harsh or severe or which is, more sinisterly, intended to inflict punishment on the erring person. He's forbidding verbal lashings, if I can put it that way. He says, that's wrong. So elders, 
The Lord is commanding us here to avoid rebuking those under our spiritual care in this kind of severe, angry, violent manner. It's wrong. It's sin. We mustn't do it. We do sometimes make mistakes. We sin, I should say. Uh, and uh, we, as elders, and sometimes it could happen uh, that uh, we are unduly harsh. Uh, please forgive us in advance for that if it happens. But we know better because this text tells us that we're not supposed to do that. We, we need to rebuke at times, especially when somebody is not paying attention to the scriptures or is, def- uh, is exhibiting some defiance uh, of uh, God's authority over them. Uh, but that rebuke needs to be a tempered rebuke of those uh, who are wayward. Um, to, to, to do so, to rebuke in this kind of manner, uh, unduly, severely, is, uh, <clears throat> is not a pastoral way to correct God's people. Uh, and, there, and it runs counter, therefore, to God's purposes in the church. And that's why we need to do our best, uh, those of us who are elders, or perhaps future elders, um, to uh, not do that. Instead of sharply rebuking, what Paul says is what uh, Timothy, and by extension all those who uh, uh, hold the office that Timothy held, uh, which is that of pastor, are to appeal. We are to appeal to rather than to sharply rebuke. The Greek word here means to appeal to, obviously, as it's translated by the New American Standard. It also means to urge, to beg, to encourage, to exhort, or to entreat. Those are all uh, words that uh, the, the Greek word can be translated uh, into English as. Now, all of those words I just used, appeal to, urge, beg, encourage, exhort, entreat, all those words speak of an approach or uh, allude to an approach to correcting a wayward church member, which is less severe and more, if you will, respectful of the person's feelings and emotions and status. We need to thread that needle, gentlemen as best we can, which won't be perfectly, by the way, those of you who are not elders. It won't always be perfect. Uh, But we do have a responsibility to um, correct. Um, And uh, that uh, doesn't always feel good on the receiving end. In fact, it rarely feels good on the receiving end, but it's necessary and it's part of our job description and we need to do that and you need to let us do that at times um, when you are not paying attention as closely as you should to what God would have you do. Church members should be appealed to by their pastors in various ways, Paul says in these two verses. And those various ways, one of them depends upon the pastor's age relative to that of the church member with whom he is whom he is correcting it's dependent upon the pastor's age relative to that of the church member whom he is correcting and i pointed out last week if you were here last week that timothy was very likely in his 30s probably his early to mid 30s 
Um, most scholars uh, think that's a pretty uh, pretty likely uh, situation or uh, to be the case. At any rate, uh, he was younger, apparently, than most of the ministers uh, in his day were. And he was also younger than, apparently, a sizable percentage of those in his church under his spiritual care. Which is why uh, he tells them, don't let anybody look down on you because of your youth in, in fulfilling your pastoral responsibilities. Um, so, because Timothy was young, um, Paul says, now he says, you're going to have to minister to certain members of your congregation, Timothy, differently than you would uh, if those individuals were older than you, considerably older than you. You're going to have to, you're going to have to modify your approach. And so, a minister's age, relative to the that of the person with whom he is talking, affects to some degree how we approach you. I approach, uh, I would approach uh, Bob or Chris differently than I would um, Adam, for example. And same with the other elders. We should. We should temper our approach. Uh, or um, if I were, as I was, 26 years ago, when I first got here, uh, I needed to approach Bill a little differently than I do now. I think I do. Anyway, uh, <laughs> I still I still revere him as uh, a father in the faith. Uh, same with Cecil Paul. They're all older than I am, by the way. Uh, anyway, <laughs> not much, though. Uh, so, yes. But also, secondly, not only does the relative age difference matter as to the approach one takes uh, as a church leader, but also church members should be appealed to by their uh, by their pastors in uh, depending upon the age and the sex of the member, again, whom the pastor is dealing with. It depends on the age and the sex of that individual. Let me read verses 1 and 2. I keep, uh, uh, keep talking about it, but I need to read it again. Do not sharply rebuke an older man, but... Rather, appeal to him, an older man, as a father, to a younger man as brothers, or younger men as brothers, the older women as mothers, and the younger women as sisters in all purity. So he's telling Timothy there, and by extension all New Testament pastors, to appeal to those under our, uh, uh, under our spiritual care as family members. Notice the family issue. He's talking in family terms here, familial terms. Uh, Because that is, in fact, what the members of the congregation are. They're members of the minister's spiritual family. Y'all are my brothers and sisters in Christ. Or fathers and mothers in the faith. If you're older than I am, significantly. Paul then gets specific. After saying, after speaking of family members, and I'll again briefly just remind you what he says there. If the pastor is quite a bit younger than a man whom he's trying to instruct, Paul indicates to Timothy that he should appeal to him as a father, which is to say, uh, with honor and respect and deference. 
if uh, if a younger minister is uh, if a minister is considerably younger than a woman to whom he is or whom he is trying to teach or, or correct, Paul writes that he should appeal to her as a mother again, with the emphasis on uh, the uh, allusion probably to the uh, fifth commandment to honor your father and mother, uh, and so to approach uh, a woman who is considerably older than the minister in with that kind of uh, respect uh, due to a mother. If the minister is trying to counsel a younger man close to his own age, if he's younger, then Paul says you should appeal to him as if he were a brother. And likewise, if he's trying to pastorally instruct a younger woman close to his own age, Paul says you should appeal to her as a sister. Only common sense, right? Yeah, it's just common sense. And it is what you folks should expect from us elders. That's the approach you should expect. And if we don't give it to you, please forgive us. But hopefully, most of the time, we will approach you with the proper uh, attitude and uh, decorum. Now, while these first two verses in chapter 5 addressed were addressed essentially to Timothy alone and his role as the pastor of the church there in Ephesus. Verses 3 through 16 are addressed to the whole church, to the whole congregation through Timothy. So he's, and we, we get this by looking, and I won't bother to look at it now, but if you look at verses 4 and verse 7, it's clear that, uh, that he's talking to the, the wider congregation at this point uh, through his letter to Timothy. And Timothy is supposed to communicate to the congregation. Which brings me to the second point of this. So we've looked at how um, various church members should and shouldn't be cared for by their pastors. Now we're going to look at how widowed church members should and shouldn't be cared for by their church family. Paul says that this decision about how to approach uh, or how to deal with widows, about whether or not to help a widow in particular, uh, by the, the, whether or not the church family should do that, should be based on the widow's situation or circumstances or person. There are different situations, different types of women who, who uh, have lost their husbands. And he proceeds to kind of uh, deal with various kinds of women and who should and shouldn't be put on the list. And I'll talk about that uh, in a moment. Um. He first says in verses 4, 7, and 8, and verse 16, and all four of those, he deals with widows and speaks about widows who had immediate family members to care for them. They had immediate family members to care for them. I'll read, uh, start in verse 3 and read verse 4. Um, and actually, and then I'll skip down to verse, uh, I'll read the whole thing. Or not the whole thing, but the verses that are pertinent. Starting verse 3. Honor widows who are widows indeed, But if any widow, here it is, has children or grandchildren, let them, meaning the children or the grandchildren, first learn to practice piety in regard to their own family and to make some return to their parents. For this is acceptable in the sight of God. Then skipping down to verse 8, he says regarding this, these, uh, these, uh, immediate family members, uh, akin to the widow, he says, prescribe these things as well, that that he's saying to Timothy, and then he says, so that they, 
the, the uh, children or grandchildren or other uh, close relatives so that they may be above reproach. And then he says in verse 8, but if anyone does not, if any of those relations to the widow do not provide for his own household, and especially for those, or, let me start over. But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, meaning his very immediate family, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. And then down in verse 16, he returns to discussing their obligations. He says, if any woman who is a believer has dependent widows, uh, in the family to which she belongs, let her assist them and let not the church be burdened uh, so that it may assist those who are, in fact, widows indeed. So all these deal with widows, all those verses deal with widows uh, who have family members, immediate uh, close family members to care for them. And he indicates there, Paul does, that uh, if a widow has, somebody who's been widowed has children or grandchildren, uh those widows, children and grandchildren, should take care of her and provide for her rather than having the church itself provide for her and her needs. Widows were particularly vulnerable back in that day. Not so much today. Uh, fact, a lot of widows, you know, uh, have their own source of income and their own careers or, or uh, callings outside the home and that sort of thing. But back in the day, widows were a very, very vulnerable uh, uh, people group, population in the, in the society. So anyway, if you've got family members, she sa- uh, he says, those family members need to take care of that widowed uh, woman. By the way, in verse 4, I kind of already indicated this, but if you look at verse 4, uh, the them in the phrase, let them first practice, learn to practice piety, that them, uh, you probably heard it as I read it, referred back to the widow's children or grandchildren. Um, and the piety that Paul is referring to is the Christian duty to provide for widowed mothers and grandmothers. That's the piety that he's referring to there in verse 4. And then in verse 7, in the second half of verse 7, he says, first to, uh, Timothy prescribed these things as well, and then he says, so that they may be above reproach, and the they that he's referring to there is likewise the widow's children and grandchildren, the relations to the immediate kin uh, to the widowed woman. He says they need to provide for her, not the church. So, folks, descendants of widows still have this obligation today. Descendants of widows, children and grandchildren, need to take care of their moms and their grandmothers if they need that care. It's an obligation. It's not a suggestion. It's It's a... It's a... It's a noble obligation and a blessed obligation, but it is, in fact, an obligation. Far, far too few Christians understand that in today's church. But this makes it quite clear. But it is not just widowed mothers and grandmothers that young family members are obliged before God to take care of. Yes, Widows is the main subject here. But if you read verse 8 with me again, it makes it clear that it goes uh, beyond widows to some degree. But if anyone does not provide for his own, meaning his own family, and especially for those of his household, meaning his very immediate family, he is denied the faith, faith and is worse than an unbeliever. That verse indicates it's not merely widows. It could include somebody who is not a woman. could be a, a, widow, a widower. 
Um, and, and those that should care for the widowed or the widower or somebody else who's in need in the family, who for whatever reasons uh, suffered from an accident and is no longer able to uh, uh, provide for himself or herself, those people, their family members are obliged to care for them. Whether it be a child, a grandchild, a parent, a grandparent, a brother, or sister, whomever that's uh, that's in need, and to shirk our responsibility in this regard towards a needy family member amounts to, Paul says there in that verse I just read to you, a repudiation of the faith. It's serious stuff. It also makes us, he says, worse than an unbeliever. You might go like, what? Let me read you what uh, George Knight said in his excellent commentary on this book, which I rely heavily upon. Um, he said this about, what does that mean, to be worse than an unbeliever? What, what, what does Paul mean by that? And I thought this was very insightful. Uh, uh, Knight says, such a person who is worse than an unbeliever Excuse me, such a person is worse than an unbeliever because Paul regards unbelievers as having, quote, and this is from Romans 2, the word of the law written on their hearts. He regards unbelievers as having the word of the law written on their hearts. And therefore, even unbelievers are known to, quote, again from Romans 2.14, do instinctively the things of the law. Unbelievers do the right thing, in other words. Oftentimes, they honor their father and their mother. Thus, for a professed believer who has God's law and has the actual words honor your father and mother in their Bible, to fail to, uh, thus for a professed believer who has God's law to fail to do what even unbelievers instinctively do warrants the verdict that he is worse than an unbeliever. Ouch. Only if it applies, but ouch if it does. Folks, and I'm speaking to you young people in particular right now, you younger people, teenagers, young adults, even um, young boys and girls. The duty to care for your aging parents is a duty that you need to commit to now while your parents are still alive. You've got to commit to it now. I mean, I say you've got to. The text is, Jesus is talking to you through the text. So, um, what are you waiting for? That's kind of what I would say. So, he's been spe- so we've been talking all this time here about widows who um, had immediate family members to care for them. So, he's, he's addressed that. Now, uh, he also in this text looks at um, widows who had no immediate family members uh, or family members at all uh, to care for them. These are the what the NAS calls the widows indeed. Um, the ESV refers to them as truly widows. The, uh, N- the Net Bible refers to them as widows who uh, are truly in need. Uh, those are all, and there are some other ways that have been, tr- uh, tr- uh, really widows is another uh, version, I think, uh, uh, I think uh, New King James uses really widows. 
Uh, anyway, translated different ways, but what they were, not every widow was uh, this widow indeed. I'm going to use the New American Standards uh, description of them, widows who were on the list. Not every widow fit into this category. Indeed, most of them probably didn't fit into the category of a widow indeed. A widow indeed was a widowed woman who had no descendants to care for her. No immediate family members to care for her. That was what constituted a widow indeed, as we see there from verse 4. It, uh, it has that, uh, 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 no, not verse 4. Um, where is it? Uh, yeah, no, it is verse 4. I'm sorry, it is 5? Okay, 5. Maybe it is 5. Yeah, right. Uh, who has been left alone? Yeah, that's it. Five. Thank you. Um, so, so let me let me let me read verse five, and then I'll read verses nine and ten, which also applies to these widows. Indeed, I'll start with verse three. Honor widows who were widows indeed. But if any widow has grandchildren or grandchildren, let them, the children or grandchildren, learn to practice piety in regard to their own family, meaning with the widow, their widowed mother, who is a widow indeed, uh, and to make some return to their parents. And notice, parents there is plural. Not just the singular widow. The widow's the main topic, but he broadens it now to parents. Um, For this is acceptable in the sight of God. Then skip down to verse uh, 9, and I'll read 9 and 10. Let a widow be put on the list, and that's what it meant to be a widow indeed. You were on this list. You were enrolled on this list that the church had. Let a woman uh, be put on the list only if she is not less than 60 years old, having been... Uh, the wife of one husband having a reputation for good works, and if she has brought up children, if she has shown hospitality to strangers, if she has washed the saints' feet, if she has assisted those in distress, and if she has devoted herself to every good work. All those verses uh, talk about this widow indeed. Um, the church in Ephesus, and presumably elsewhere around the uh, where the church was in the Roman world, uh, had a list of widows whom the church had committed itself through its leaders to uh, materially provide for, to care for. The church had a list um, of those for whom they would provide. And that provision was doubtless orchestrated by the church's deacons, whose a description of them is given in church uh, back in chapter 3 of this very letter. We looked at that some weeks ago. And it was the deacons that were undoubtedly in charge of this list and maintaining it and and caring for these widows uh, uh, on behalf of the church or um, uh, getting uh, tapping church members to provide that care. And the provision, uh, the care, probably included goods, foodstuffs, for example, services, uh, you know, like uh, who knows what that would, but and, and money. Uh, to, to purchase uh, things at the market if the widow uh, was penniless or had, had very little money. Uh, and that would those goods and services and money would be stuff that was provided by her fellow congregants through their giving to the church as they paid their tithe and gave their offerings. It was a list that this is these we, we are obliged we have obliged ourselves to care for these women. Paul then provides a list of criteria uh, that the Ephesian church had to use, and presumably other churches as well that got this letter and read it, uh, to determine which widows belonged on the widow care list and which ones did not. And just quickly, I'm just going to very quickly go through this here. Uh, The list had uh, uh, six things on it. Uh, First of all, 
again, the, woman, the widow uh, who was to be put on the list couldn't be a widow who had children or, or grandchildren that could provide for her, uh, as we've already indicated. Secondly, verse 9 says she had to be at least 60 years of age. Not many people lived past 60 back in that day, I think. That was fair to say. A lot of people died younger than that. So there weren't too many people that were past 60. So there, right there, limited the number of people that the church had to care for, uh, commit itself to care for. She had to be, verse 9, also in the letter, half, the second half, the wife of one man. Now you're like, what? That's, you know, I've read that before and gone, what? Um, this doesn't mean that the widow had only ever married once in her life. That's not what this probably, I'll use the word probably, means. Because, why, why do I not think that's what it means? Because on the first reading, that's what it appears to be saying. You could only have married once. You couldn't have, you can't, can't have lost a husband and then get remarried and then lose that husband and, husband and be on this list. But see, that very thing that I just said is the reason why that's probably not what it means. Uh, remarriage after the death of one's husband or wife was permitted in the New Testament. In fact, verse uh, 14 tells, uh, he tells younger widows, uh, who had husbands who lost them, get married again, right? So clearly it's permissible to remarry under the, you know, if you're widowed. Um, and and Paul, so, so Paul almost certainly isn't excluding from this list, this care list, a once widowed woman who had, by the way, with the church's encouragement and blessing, remarried and then been widowed a second time and like, oh, no, no, we can't help her. No, 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 she's been married twice. Mm-mm. No, that's just that's just very unlikely. I, I won't say impossible, but it's very unlikely that that's what Paul means. Um, what Paul uh, probably means, almost certainly means, is that a widow uh, under uh, who who is being considered for inclusion on this list must never have, to anyone's knowledge, committed adultery at any time during the course of her marriage. She'd never had more than one man. She'd been faithful to her marriage vows. That's probably what this means. There's no knowledge of her having uh, been unfaithful to her husband. Um, and that's probably what's going on here. Fourthly, she had to be a godly woman. Verses 5 and 6 makes this clear. Uh, but she was widowed indeed and who, ha- and, and who has been left alone has fixed her hope on God and continues in entreaties and prayers day and night. Um, uh, she's not like the woman described in verse 6 who's given herself to want and pleasure and is therefore spiritually dead even though she lives. Uh, she's a godly woman. And more than that, she's a, she's a godly woman who has a reputation for doing good works. Verse 10. Having a reputation for good works. And then he, she, he specifies those good works. Having brought up children, shown hospitality to strangers, washed the feet of, uh, of, of other believers, assisted those in distress, devoted herself to every good work. She has a pattern, a lifelong or at least a considerable uh, period of time uh, 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 pattern of, of serving others in Christ's church. That's also required for being on the list. And then finally, if you look at verses 11 and 12, this is kind of backhandedly, I get this, but you'll, uh, you'll hopefully see why in a moment when I read it. Apparently, a widow whom the church had agreed to provide for, a widow indeed, had to, had to pledge to the church to remain a widow 
and to devote herself to serving others, in, and perhaps outside the church as well. You can deduce this from looking at verses, from reading what we read there in verses 11 and 12, which speaks about the impropriety of putting younger women on that list. Let me read it. Uh, but refuse to put younger w- widows on the list, and, and this is implied here, because if they're on the list, well, I'll, I'll, well, anyway, let me get, let me read. But refuse to put younger widows on the list, for when they feel sensual desires in disregard of Christ, they want to get married. And so if they're on their list, on the list, and they want to get married and do, they thus incur condemnation, verse 12, because they have set aside their previous pledge. There it is. You see that? So if they, there's a, there's a implied pledge that a widow who's on the list, on the widow indeed list, has made not to get married again. So younger widows shouldn't be on that list. Because they need to be married, is Paul's point. Most of them, unless they've got the gift. of Which, they wouldn't have the gift because they've been married. Anyway, um, yeah. Uh, so it seems then that the church committed itself to providing for the material needs of these widows in return for these widows promising to be available to perform certain acts of Christian service whenever the need for such service arose. And probably the uh, deacons or the elders probably would tap her and say, uh, would you please go and take care of, you know, the... Uh, Whatever the these members of the church need somebody, they're they're all sick, you know, and they need somebody to provide cold compress to their heads and you know that sort of thing while they're in recovering, that kind of stuff. So these are criteria. We don't have a widows indeed list, by the way. Um, in some ways, a lot of what is being described here has has is not so applicable in our day and age because of the wealth in our society and personal wealth that people have. But were it to come to that, uh, were we to return to uh, more of the uh, day-to-day living of uh, eking out a living, uh, trying to stay alive kind of lifestyle, this would apply to us in, in the church today. It would be the list we should use and the criteria we should use to determine uh, who will be materially provided for through the giving of the other members of the church. And lastly, this is the last group that I'm going to deal with, and this is a shouldn't, not a should uh, group. Uh, uh, so widows who have <coughs> church, uh, have family members uh, to care for them shouldn't be put on the list. Widows who don't have any immediate family members to care for them and are destitute should be put on the list and fulfill the other criteria as well. <clears throat> and then he says younger widows <clears throat> should not be put on the list of those whom the church should commit or commits to support. And that's again in verse 11. But refuse to put younger widows on the list. And then he gives reasons. I'm just going to read them for the sake of time. Uh, plus, uh, <clears throat> yeah, mainly for the sake of time. But refuse to put young widows on the list, for when they feel sensual desires in disregard of Christ, they get they want to get married, thus incurring condemnation because they have set aside their previous pledge. But, and then he goes on, where are we? No, I'm uh, and how far do I want to read? Yes. And at the same time, they also learn to be idle if they're widowed, young widows, lost their husbands. Uh, at, the, at the same time, they learn to be idle as they go around from house to house. 
uh, and not merely idle, but also gossips and busybodies, talking about things not proper to mention. So he says, this is the reason that younger young ladies uh, who are widows, uh, who have proven they don't have the gift, ought to uh, concentrate their attention on finding a man to be a husband. And then Paul exhorts these younger widows as to what they should do, which I've already started to say, but there's more to it than that. Verse 14, Therefore, I want, I as an elder, of, as a, an apostle of Christ, so this has, this has the, uh, this is actually command language, uh, even though it's couched in the I want, it's similar to what we read back in uh, uh, chapter 2, uh, some of the things there where I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority, it's the same idea. Uh, that's actually a commandment, just uh, uh, couched in that kind of uh, more gentle language. Same here. Therefore, I want younger widows to get married, bear children, keep house, and give no give the enemy no occasion for reproach. For some have already turned aside to follow Satan. This letter, folks, is full of politically incorrect statements, like this one. You know, I'm. I'm thankful that nobody started throwing anything at me when I read that. <clears throat> but in some places they would, you know, or start heckling. You male chauvinist. Paul was a male chauvinist. No, Paul was not a male chauvinist. God is not a male chauvinist. Christ, our King, is not a male chauvinist. These are goals for young, young, most young ladies. Again, unless somebody has the gift. These are goals, life goals, that God wants most, if not all, young ladies in the church, whether widowed or single, to aspire to. God wants this for young ladies. Had God not wanted this, he would not have allowed this letter to make it into the Bible. He would have discarded it, if you will, like he did so many other first century writings that didn't make it here, like the Shepherd of Hermas, and like the Didache, and I could go on. The Gospel of Thomas. Ooh, that was awful. Anyway. He included it in here for a reason, because it applies to the church, New Testament church down through the ages. You young ladies, regardless of what the world tells you, and you're going to get a lot of this from the world, you already have, one of the most noble, fulfilling callings that there is for a young Christian woman is to be a homemaker, a mother, and a wife, Amen. and a helpmate. Amen. It's noble. It's good. It's right. I'll leave it at that. So, Individual Christians have a God-given duty to care for our own, especially those of our immediate family, even when it is inconvenient or painful sometimes to do so. And Christian churches, collective bodies of believers, have a God-given duty to care for those who have no one to care for them and who don't have the ability to care for themselves. Let's do what we've been commanded, shall we? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this this passage. 
Thank you for the instruction we've received for it. Would you please, Lord, help us not to respond inappropriately? Uh, We live in a day and age when most people just chafe under teaching like this. Please help us not to chafe under it, not to feel um, burdened by it, uh, especially the young ladies who are listening to this sermon. Would you please uh, help us all to see the heavenly wisdom that is found in this uh, in this book and in this letter that we have from you <clears throat> through the hand of the Apostle Paul. And would you give us joy in obeying what uh, you've called us to. <clears throat> and Lord, if there's anybody who is not, uh, who's listening here to me in this room or uh, uh, remotely who has not uh, found the Lord Jesus, who doesn't know Christ savingly, who has not trusted in Jesus alone to save him from uh, the hell that he and we all deserve, and uh, received forgiveness as a result, would you please give a lost soul a new heart and therefore, and with it, faith to trust in Jesus alone. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing our hymn of preparation. The Lord's Supper is one of two ordinances that the Lord Jesus himself instituted uh, to be celebrated throughout the New Testament age by his people in his church. The other is uh, baptism. Both of them are signs and seals of the covenant of grace. First and foremost, they are signs and seals of the covenant. It's a, they are signs of the covenant um, in that they symbolize uh, the broken and uh, shed blood of broken body and shed blood of Christ, and they are seals of the covenant in that God further is further guaranteeing, in addition to what He said in His Word, that uh, His promises in the gospel. Uh, are yes and amen. Indeed, all his promises are yes and amen. Uh, record of the institution of the Lord's Supper is found in a number of places, one of which is Matthew 26, starting in verse 26. We read uh, the following, And when they were eating, Jesus took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Um, The Lord's Supper is uh, to be celebrated by those who know themselves to be Christians. Uh, if you are not sure you're a Christian or you know you're not, please do not come. It's unwise. Uh, indeed, it's dangerous to do that because it makes a mockery of what uh, the elements uh, and what the sacrament uh, stands for and is about. And God doesn't preach. Does, God does not appreciate mockery. Um, but if uh, just because you are a, a, a Christian. Um, doesn't necessarily mean you need to partake as well. You need to be a Christian, that's for sure, and you need to be a baptized Christian, not necessarily baptized in this church, but uh, you need to be a baptized Christian in an evangelical church, uh, indicating that you are, uh, to us uh, as elders, that uh, there's a good reason to believe that your profession to be a Christian is a valid one, is a credible one. Uh, and that's our, if you're not visiting with, if you're visiting with us, then that's uh, why we ask uh, that you be 
know yourself to be baptized and in good standing of your church. Uh, you must not come if you're, uh, in addition to being a non-Christian, are under discipline, or if you're cherishing some sin in your heart that only you perhaps know about. If you're cherishing sin in your heart, um, if you're clinging to, refusing to repent of some sin that you know offends God, you're in very, you're in a very dangerous place. And um, you need to use this time to reflect on your rebellion, your idolatry, uh, your danger, and uh, of, of God's discipline if you're a believer who's just wayward, and of uh, God's wrath if you're an unbeliever. Uh, but you need to use this time to pray, not uh, participate, because uh, uh, Scripture says that uh, must not be done. But if you're wrestling with sin, if you have, as we all are, right? We're all wrestling with sin, uh, indwelling sin. That's okay. That's the kind of person that should come, is the person who's in the struggle, who's actually fighting against their carnal uh, urges and their, and their sinful uh, in tendencies, put it that way. Uh, you need to come because this is a means. This is not merely simple. And this is more than that. The Holy Spirit, Spirit of Christ, when we rightly partake, that is by faith, uh, the Holy Spirit will use our partaking. Uh, and uh, as we concentrate on Jesus as a means to strengthen us spiritually against, uh, to do battle with indwelling uh, sin and uh, also with the world and the devil. So if you're wrestling, it's quite okay to partake as long as you're not defying God openly and deliberately. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for uh, means uh, that you have appointed to be used by your people to be a blessing to them, to us. We thank you that you have appointed this means, uh, that we might uh, remember uh, our our Savior and his suffering on our behalf, but not just his suffering and death, but also his resurrection and his ascension to the place of power and glory where uh, you now are, Lord Jesus. We pray that uh, you would set these elements, Lord, apart from the common use uh, that they normally are used for under the holy purposes for which we are now about to use them. And would you help us, Lord, all to consciously and deliberately feed upon your body and blood, Lord Jesus, you. Um, as we partake of these elements. And we thank you uh, for the great benefit that comes when we rightly partake. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. As I am ministering in his name, give this to you. And he said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Please wait until we're all served and we'll eat together. Likewise with the wine.
The body of Christ was broken for you. Take and eat. same manner he also took the cup and having given thanks as we've already done he gave it to his disciples saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is shed for many for the forgiveness of sins drink from it all of you there is grape juice in the very middle if you can't in good conscience partake of the wine, but we would encourage you to partake of the wine, the benefit of the effect of the wine on your tongue is, uh, is important, I think. The blood of Christ was shed for you. Drink from it, all of you. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we praise you and thank you for living and then dying and rising again for us. Lord, that you should do that for sinful dust is is uh, astonishing, almost unfathomable, and yet you did that for us. We are so grateful. We thank you for this uh, meal that reminds us of your the awful price you paid to pay off our debt. We thank you that you bless us uh, through. 
through the means of grace, uh, by your Spirit working as we partake of those means. And we thank you for the blessing that's promised uh, to us regarding the Lord's Supper. We ask that you would use uh, this to strengthen us in our battle against unbelief, our battle against indwelling sin, idolatry, irreverence. Um, We ask that you would help us, Lord, to grow more and to act and think and speak more like Jesus in coming days ahead. Um, That we might be better witnesses for you in a world that so desperately needs you. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Receive now God's blessing. Now may the God of peace, who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.